Mark chapter 11, that's where we are today. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of, his, two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, found a colt tied at a door inside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there to them said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others um, spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All right, so before we jump into this text, let me catch us up uh, to where we have been. As I mentioned before, there are two sections to the book of Mark. Mark chapters 1 through 8, which establishes the authority and power of Jesus. Uh, you see moments where people are asking, who is this man? What kind of authority is this and time and time again in Mark chapter one, chapters one through eight, you see that the crowds are amazed at the person of Jesus. And then when you get to Mark chapter eight, you see a clear shift in the book where it's not so much about what Jesus can do, but rather it's about who he is. And the catapult of, of everything in the whole book is Mark chapter eight, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And so in the second half, you see it's not centered on so much of the identity, identity of Jesus, um, but it's about, establish, or it's about establishing his messiahship. It's about establishing his purpose, why he came. And starting in our text today, Mark is going to focus in on one week in the life of Jesus. So there are 16 chapters in the book of Mark, and the first 10 covered the first three years of his life, and the last five chapters are all in one week. That's it. And remember, Jesus has been telling his disciples, hey, I am going to Jerusalem. I am going to Jerusalem. I am going to Jerusalem. And now we have arrived at that moment. He has arrived in Jerusalem. And so just the structure of this book tells you something, right? It tells you that the last week of Jesus' life was very important. And I don't know if, uh, if you've ever heard this before, but I had a professor say one time that you should try reading the Gospels backwards. That was one of our assignments one time. Start for example, at Mark chapter 16, and then read 15, 14, 13, and so on. And by doing that, it'll give you a different perspective on the life of Jesus. Because the majority of this book, for example, is that one week. And so reading that first will actually give some hindsight into what everything else is about. Because everything leads to this week. So maybe that's an assignment I can give you. Pick a gospel and then read backwards. Another thing that's interesting is that each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are all pretty consistent when it comes to this last week in the life of Jesus. Whereas in the rest of the books, um, everything's kind of scattered. You'll get different accounts, and it's kind of ordered differently. They all have the feeding of the 5,000, but outside of that, you get different moments told in different ways. But starting today with the triumphal entry, they're pretty united. There's some differences, but they're pretty united. If you think about the gospels as a whole, I mean, you think about the Christmas story, 
It's only in two Gospels, right? Matthew and Luke. But all four have the triumphal entry, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. All that to say, we are entering into a very important section of the book of Mark. But let me warn you, okay? At first glance, this text doesn't seem all that impressive. It doesn't feel that important. I mean, most of the text is about a donkey, right? And if you're like me, when I read it this past week, I'm like, why do I care so much about Eeyore, right? Why do I care so much about Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? But it's interesting, the entire movement of this text is strange, right? The disciples, they go to Bethany, and they walk through this party at the entrance of Jerusalem. He goes into the temple, looks around, and then he goes out back to Bethany. We're like, okay, what was that about? Why did he just walk into the temple just to, just to leave? And also in this text, there are people shouting a foreign languages language. They're waving palm branches, and you're like, why are they doing that? I remember when I first, start, start, uh, first started going to church, they were singing this song called Hosanna. It goes, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Anybody ever heard that song? And I turned to a buddy of mine, and I said, what's Hosanna? And he said, I don't know, bro, just sing it, right? <laughs> and I left that place, I was like, man, Christians are kind of weird, right? Like, I don't understand this. I don't understand what's happening. Well, this moment that we're in in Scripture today, it's one of those moments where background and context really do matter, okay? It would be like, all right, let me tell you a story. So a couple years ago, Katie's boss, uh, who's the director of GoCor, which is the missions organization she works for, his name is Paul, and he's from Minneapolis. You can boo, it's okay. Um, and he came down to visit us in Texas, and for years we had told him about the legend of Bucky's, okay? The legend of Bucky's. Um, it all started when Paul and another GoCor staff member they were at a conference together in Dallas. That former staff member's name was Brandon Brewer. So Brandon is right here. He's actually visiting us today, and that's his wife, Sarah. So wave your hands. There you go. Uh, not everybody. <laughs> uh, they are going to the Middle East. Uh, they're launching in a few months. And so if you don't know them, you don't know their story, I'd encourage you to introduce yourself after the service. They're asking for team, team, uh, teammates for financial support, and prayer. So go ahead and introduce themselves. But Brandon's from Dallas, and so him and Paul were in a conference in Dallas. And so at some point, Brandon left the room and left Paul alone in the room. And Brandon's mom, whose name is Penny, uh, she had provided a goodie bag for Brandon. And Brandon, if I get this story wrong in any way, just go with it, bro, okay? Um, but Brandon had left his goodie bag behind in the hotel room. And lo and behold, guess what was in that goodie bag? Beaver nuggets, that's correct, right? Everyone knows, beaver nuggets. So Paul got his hand on, hands on some beaver nuggets. And as the story goes, that by the time Brandon returned, most of, if not all of that bag had been eaten. And thus the legend of beaver nuggets began for Paul. He became obsessed with them. And when I say obsessed, anytime Katie and I would travel to Minneapolis, he'd say, bring me some beaver nuggets, right? And we'd, so we'd pack a whole suitcase full of beaver nuggets. And we kept telling him, these are from a place called Bucky's, and we would try to explain what Bucky's was. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. It's pretty hard, right? We we're like, well, it's a gas station. <laughs> On, that's a good way to put it. Uh, it's a gas station, but it's also not like they've got Texas merchandise and a bunch of food. They've got the cleanest bathrooms on this side of heaven, right? And so you just try to explain Bucky's, and it's difficult. Well, he finally came down to visit, 
and we said, is there anything you specifically want to do while you're in our country? Um, we were like, do you want to go get some barbecue? Do you want to go to the rodeo? Do you want to shoot some guns? And he looked at me straight in the face and said, I want to go to Bucky's. Right? <laughs> and so that's what we did like three times. Um, and so we went to Bucky's and his eyes were open, right? He saw the glory that is Bucky's. And all of a sudden, everything we were telling him made sense. He saw it, right? Oh, this is Bucky's. And now he tells his friends, oh, you don't know what Bucky's is, right? And so all that to say, that's kind of like our text today. There's so much to it and it's hard to explain, but once you see it, everything makes sense and it'll change you. It'll change the way that you think about the rest of this gospel. So let's start in verse one. It says, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Okay, stop right there. This is the beginning of our Bucky's moment. We have to understand the importance of these locations. There are four different places mentioned in verse one here. And so Jesus, and Mark didn't have to mention these cities. He could have just said he went into Jerusalem, but he specifically mentioned these, mentions these cities. He mentions Bethany, which is like a suburb. It's like saying I stopped in Cypress, Texas on my way to Houston. Bethany sits up on the Mount of Olives. It's a ridge that sits north and south, south, and it's to the east of Jerusalem. So Jesus is to the east of Jerusalem, and he's about to enter the city. Okay, why does that matter? If you were a first century reader, you would have read about his geographical journey, and you would have went, wait, he's doing what? So if you were a first century Jew, you would have been familiar with the book of Ezekiel. It's this beautiful yet terrifying story of God's pursuit of his people in the midst of their depravity. It's about how God loves his people, how he cares for them. It talks about how he has married his people. He has made a covenant with his people. He says to them, I clothed you in silk and linen and I cared for you. But then the prophet tells the people of God, do you know what you did with that blessing? Do you know what you did with that love? And in Ezekiel 16, 15, he says this, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. And he goes on to say, I gave you gold and you used that gold that I gave you to buy yourself lovers. You oppressed the poor. You gave glory to false idols. And when God saw what his people were doing, he judged them. And in his judgment, his glory left them. God left his people. Ezekiel 11, verse 22. It says, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. The glory of God left, and he went up to the east on the mountain. But as you go throughout the book of Ezekiel, it's clear that although God has left their presence, he has not forsaken them. He will never divorce his people. He will never deny the covenant that he has made. And so we get another vision from Ezekiel in chapter 43, verse one. Listen to this, right? This is good. It says, he led me to the gate. Is it up there? Okay, good. He led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. 
And just like the vision that I'd seen from the Cherbar Canal, and I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so God looks at his people, his bride, these people that he has married, that he's loved, that he's cared for, that have rejected him, and he takes his glory and he goes east. And Ezekiel says, the glory of, the, the glory of God will return. And do you know where it will come from? It will come from the east. Specifically, it will come from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14 tells us that the feet of the Messiah will come from the Mount of Olives. And what's beautiful here is that you see Jesus walk into Jerusalem, and then he comes from the east. He goes straight from the Mount of Olives to the temple. And so this moment, it's like the husband taking his spot for his wedding right in front of the church. You know what's about to happen. It's like seeing the closer come into the baseball game at the end of the game. You know he's about to come in and win that game. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and he heads into Jerusalem and it is the reestablishing of the glory of God among his people. And by Jesus entering into Jerusalem this way, by way of the Mount of Olives, it's a declaration by him. I'm not hiding anymore. I'm telling you exactly who I am. In this entire text, Everything Jesus does is intentional. All through this text, he is revealing and he is declaring his arrival. So in verses two through seven, Jesus takes a great interest in a donkey, okay? I call him Eeyore. Um, Mark spends a lot of time talking about this donkey. Jesus says, hey, send two disciples. He says, go to the village in front of you. You'll find a colt that no one's ever sat on. Untie it, bring it to me. If anyone says, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and bring it back. So what happens? They find a colt, tied outside the door. They untie it. Someone says, hey, why are you doing that? And they said, Jesus needs it. So they bring him the colt, and he sat it on it. And you're like, what in the world is going on here? What's so special about this donkey? Something I want you to notice. Everything that Jesus has done in the Gospels to this point has been reactionary, okay? In this moment, Jesus is very purposeful. He isn't reacting anymore. He is clearly setting things in motion. Before this, someone comes to him and says, hey, I'm sick, can you help me? You bet. Hey, my friend's got a demon possession. Hey, can you help? Absolutely. Hey, Jesus, when is it legal to get a divorce? I don't know, let me talk about creation, right? I mean, a lot of Jesus's ministry is responsive. But here, Jesus begins to get proactive. He begins to do things on purpose. And more than that, he clearly starts to control things. He says, go get a donkey. They're going to give you some pushback. Say, I need it. Jesus isn't reacting anymore. He is setting things in motion. He anticipates that there will be a donkey. And when you try to grab it, they will say to you, why are you grabbing it? And you will tell them this, and they'll be cool with that. And I can imagine the disciples were like, okay, you want us to do what? And what's going to happen? And we're supposed to say, what? And everything plays out exactly as Jesus said it, would, said it would. And we were supposed to notice that everything is happening in this moment by divine design. Another interesting thing uh, about this moment with the whole donkey thing is, have you ever noticed Jesus ride anywhere? No, it's not like he gets tired. He's like, hey, can we call the donkey cab? I don't know, the donkey Uber. He, he doesn't do that. He never, he walks anywhere. And it's not just some random donkey. He says, make sure it's one that no one has ever ridden before. And the text never tells you about the donkey itself, right? 
He never gives the donkey a name like Eeyore or Jack and says, hey, Jack loves apples. If you feed him an apple, then he'll walk with you. We get nothing about the actual donkey. It's all about how Jesus went about getting the donkey. And so everything that Jesus is doing, it has a name. It was known as the Angaria. The Angaria. Um, when a king would come into a city, especially in this culture, um, he had the right for an Angaria, which would be to commandeer an animal to ride into the city like a king should. And notice that when Jesus tells them, hey, get me a donkey, and when you tell them why, you tell them the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. I am coming into my city as the king of Israel, as the groom of the bride. Up to this point, Jesus has been evasive with his identity. He would heal someone, and he'd say, hey, don't tell anyone. Cast out a demon, but then tell that person, hey, keep it to yourself. He was purposely secretive. Why? Because he had a divine design time that he wanted his identity to be revealed. He's not disguising it anymore. No more ducking the crowds. He comes in and he is staging an event here. There's another passage that is fascinating. Genesis 49.10. It'll be on the screen. Genesis 49.10 is this beautiful passage where God says that the scepter shall never depart from Judah. Okay? God tells the tribe of Judah, you will always have a king on the throne. Here's what he says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And the lineage of Jesus traces back to which tribe? Judah. That phrase, until tribute comes to him, in Hebrew it translates to Shiloh. So until Shiloh comes. It's a hard phrase to translate, but it basically means to whom it belongs. So Judah you will always have the king's scepter in your hand and your time, you will always have a king until the scepter comes to whom it belongs. And then look at the next verse, verse 11. He says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And so when Jesus grabs this donkey, the first thing that we need to know is that Jesus is declaring the king of Judah is here. I am the one to whom the scepter belongs. Now, a couple other things about the donkey. He specifically requested he gets a donkey that no one has ever set. Do you find that to be a little strange? Because I do, right? Like, Jesus, what do you have against donkeys that have been ridden? What's the problem with that? I'm curious in here, has anyone ever um, tried to ride a horse that has never been ridden before? See, a couple of you. Okay. I tried it once. Um, I was a kid and we went to visit family in El Dorado, Texas, and they had some wild horses on their land. So I woke up one morning and I thought, I want to ride a horse today. So I found my target, walked up to the horse, and I tried to jump on its back. And what do you think it did? It bucked me off, right? It bucked me in, I mean, 50 feet, I'm exaggerating, 50 feet in the air. And I landed and it knocked the air out of me. And to this day, I am still terrified of horses. I don't know how you people ride those monsters, right? Right. <laughs> Right. Horses and bees, right? The most terrifying creatures of God's creation. No, they're not. Sorry, Lorelai. <laughs> you should never trust an animal that sleeps standing up. No. <laughs> it's okay. I'm just kidding. Uh, but as a general rule, animals don't trust us. They just don't, right? There's a disconnect with creation because we were tasked to be stewards of this world. There's an old famous preacher uh, named George Whitfield who once said, why do animals growl and run? Because they know that we have a quarrel with their maker. I love that quote. And you see Jesus, he approaches an unwritten colt, and that colt submits to its maker. 
It's a small moment, right? When Jesus rides this donkey, it's a picture. All is restored, right? The animal submits to the stewardship of a human being, Jesus the Messiah, and he rides this donkey as a king. Which, by the way, is another interesting thing about this passage. Everything Jesus does is in line with what a king would do when he would enter a city. Whenever a king would enter a city, they would have their status recognized. They would have a formal entry upon an animal. They would be greeted with acclaim. They would enter the city and go to the temple, and they would participate in some activity in the temple. And all of those things happen with Jesus. He comes in under the banner of the son of David. He will ride in on an animal. He is greeted with the name Hosanna. He will ride into the temple and he will participate in an activity in the temple. But he does all these, except he goes further than any other king. He rides in on an animal that no one has ever sat on. I mean, think about it. Jesus sits on this animal and he rides through chaos. There would have been 500,000 to a million people in the city at this point for Passover week. That's a lot of noise for a skittish little animal that's never been ridden. What's the point? When the Lord of creation comes, creation finds its peace. So when we first encounter an animal, they have to figure out, do they trust us or not, right? What kind of ruler are you going to be to me? And a lot of times that's how we approach God, right? What kind of Lord are you going to be over me that we're afraid that God is going to hurt us or betray us? If Jesus is going to rule me, then he might hurt me. But Jesus demonstrates with this donkey, I have not come to hurt you but I have come to restore you and I've come to bring you peace. At the end of all things, Isaiah talks about how the lion and the lamb will lie together. The restoration of creation. All right, I wanna mention one more thing about the donkey. And it's the most important thing about the donkey. Most kings, when they rode into town, they would ride in on a huge stallion, a big white horse. And there's an interesting buildup in this scene, right? And in fact, it goes all the way back to the last chapter. He tells his disciples, hey, we're going to Bethany. We're going to come in from the east side of the city. And I'm assuming that they were probably like, oh, really? Yeah, we're going to Jerusalem. In the last chapter, the blind man, Bartimaeus, Kyle talked about this. Bartimaeus called out, son of David. And Jesus says, yeah, what's up? Right? He's not hiding his identity. And you can sense the tension build up. They've been talking about for chapters now, we are going to Jerusalem. We are going to Jerusalem. And the idea is Rome stands no chance, Right? Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come in. He's going to wipe them out. He's going to ride in as king, kill the Romans, and set up a Jewish kingdom. That was their flawed understanding of the Messiah. He's going to show up like a victorious king and defeat the enemies of Israel. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to ride in as king. Go get me a donkey. And you're like, what? (laughs) Matthew, in his gospel, will tell you exactly why he does it. He is fulfilling what was prophesied in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, the prophet Zechariah is talking about the arrival of Alexander the Great in Palestine. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It was written well before Alexander the Great ever showed up, before he was ever born. And it's a marvel because everything that happens, happens almost exactly how the prophet said it would happen with Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is moving from north to south, from Greece to Jerusalem. And on his way, he is destroying cities. Zechariah 9 tells us about the city of Tyre. We've talked about this city. Zechariah 9, 3, it says, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power 
on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. And if you know your history, you know exactly what these verses are talking about. When the people of Tyre heard that Alexander the Great was coming, they moved to an island off their coast, right? They thought, you can't get us here. What are you going to do, right? So they thought they were safe. So when Alexander the Great showed up, he leveled their old city to rubble, and he took that rubble, and he built a land bridge to that island, wiped them all out. As you continue through Zechariah 9, he is headed towards Jerusalem. He is conquering one city after another. He's in Ashkelon. He's in Gaza. He's in Ekron. He's moving closer and closer to Jerusalem. It'd be like if I said, he's in Dallas. He's in Hillsborough. The great check stop in West has been destroyed, right? The towers of Waco have fallen, and now he's in Troy. He's coming. But then in verse 8, in Zechariah 9, God says, I will encamp at my house as a guard. But then in verse 9, Zechariah 9, 9, God speaks of a different king that is coming. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. He says, Behold, your king, your king does not rule a nation. He rules all nations, and he rules not as a dictator without compassion and in violence, but he rules in humility. He is majesty and meekness. He is power and compassion. As he enters the city, the people recognize what's happening, and they welcome their king. It says in verse 8 in Mark 11, many spread their cloaks on the road. Others spread leafy branches they had cut from the field, and those who went before him and those followed him were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These people, they grab uh, what Mark calls leafy branches. John will call them branches of palm trees. And so why did they grab these palm trees? Palm trees were a sign of nationalistic pride. They were the symbol of the people of Israel. The, the idea was when you celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, it was to remember when the people of Israel were liberated from Egypt, that as they went into the wilderness, they would make these shelters that had palm branches as roofs, okay? And so palm branches were associated with God's liberation of his people. When Simon Maccabee drove out the Syrian forces later in their history, the people waved palm branches as they, as they rode away. I love that. I think that's hilarious. Um, it was pride in who they were as a people. And they start shouting, Hosanna, as Jesus comes in. Hosanna is a Greek word that is translated from a Hebrew phrase, Hoshiana. It means pray, save us. And that phrase is taken straight out of Psalm 118, Psalm 118, 25, where it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. And Psalm 118 is known as the triumph song of the people of Israel. And then the crowd adds on, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, after they shout Hosanna. So let me set the scene. I know there's a lot of information. They meet Jesus at the outskirts, from Bethany all the way into Jerusalem. They grab palm branches, the symbol of victory, the symbol of God's liberation, and they quote the triumph portion of the victory song of Israel. They are saying, Lord, we want salvation. Pray, save us, Hosanna. And they look at Jesus and they say, you brought it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And traditionally, when the people of Israel would sing Psalm 118, all the men and the boys would chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they understood this is the psalm that we sing when victory has come. And when Jesus wrote in, they believed Psalm 118, the victory song, the triumph song where the Messiah comes, this is about him. And Jesus understood 
Who is received in the capital city like this? The king is. So everyone chants Hosanna as Jesus rides in while men and young boys wave palm branches. It was a declaration to everyone. Yes, I am your king. In Luke's account, the Pharisees come out and they tell him to tell everyone to stop. They say, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He says, if I tell them to stop, then the rocks will worship in their place. That's an incredibly arrogant thing to say, unless it's true. He says, you don't think I'm worthy? Brother, all of creation knows who I am. I'm the king. Now, there's one other thing I want to mention before I close. There is something special about this day, the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. We know it as Palm Sunday. But I would say the more important thing is that it's Lamb Selection Day this day. And according to uh, Exodus 12, Lamb Selection Day was the day that every male had to select a lamb for their family, a lamb that would be sacrificed. Um, This lamb had to be a year-old male without any blemish or defect, and Lamb Selection Day would have been a festive day in Jerusalem, right? People would make the journey from all over over the villages, from outside of Jerusalem. They would have all come into Jerusalem, and they would have picked a lamb from the flocks that the Sadducees would have bred specifically for this day. And so it's no coincidence that Jesus, the perfect lamb, would ride into Jerusalem on this day. And in verse 11, look at what it says. It says, he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. So he went out to Bethany with the 12. So my question has always been, why did Jesus walk into the temple on Lamb Selection Day and leave? I think you have to consider what happens next. What happens next? We'll see it next week. Next week, he will shut the temple down. He will kick the sacrifices out. He will sit in the temple and he will begin to teach and he will shut down the operations of the biggest week of the year for the temple. He shuts it all down. Why would he do that? Why would he shut down the system? Because he's taken its place. Because he is the lamb. He's the sufficient lamb, the sacrifice for all sacrifices. He is taking their place as the sufficient sacrifice for sin as the sacrificial lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's our king. That's why this story is important. He walks in as, as king and says, I don't rule with violence. I, don't, I rule with authority and meekness, with power and compassion. And he rides in humbly and he says, I am the lamb. I'm the sacrifice for sin. In a moment, uh, we'll sing a couple songs of worship, and then we'll walk outside to celebrate baptism. And as you watch and pray for the folks getting baptized, my prayer for each of us is that we would remember the sweetness of salvation, the joy of what it felt like to pick your Bible up and just go, wow, this is your word. To remember what it's like to be filled with hope, that when you think about next week and next year, you remember Jesus is with you, and that means something. That as we watch these three folks get baptized, we would commit to pray and encourage them because as many joyful times are ahead, there will be just as many difficult, and they will need the body of Christ. And that we would remember, specifically in this text, that our king rode in as king, and he died as a servant. 
for us.